This is the last Sunday in our series as we've uh, processed, I guess, or, or discussed, acknowledged, named what it means to live in a broken and fallen world where the realities of things like grief and trauma and shame exist and what it looks like to sort of be believers in that world and, and what how, how that functions and, and the, the truths of our own stories and what it means to process our own stories and to be honest. And in many ways, as Kristen was saying, we're, we're going into the Advent season and, and as we talked about this series, we were like, ah, like, how heavy do we go? Advent can be kind of heavy. And, and, and Advent's really kind of a continuation of this series. And so we're excited for that. We're going to kind of be able to talk about it from a different angle and move into something. That there's this realities of this life that I think at this point we get. We gather on a Sunday to celebrate, to worship, uh, to feast. We had Thanksgiving dinner as a, as a community here. And we're going to have Thanksgiving this week with our families or where you find yourself. So, you know, like you're going to do this thing where you're acknowledging that there are things to be thankful for. That there are things to be excited about. That's what like this week is kind of for, and yet simultaneously, all of the things we've been talking about like don't just disappear, like they don't just end. The holidays are a weird thing for people because you you have this excitement, this joy, and yet simultaneously, for some of you, you know that like this holiday will be weird because it's a constant reminder. For some of you, we talked about this last week, right? Like Kyle talked about how this may not go away. K.J. Ramsey is an author that wrote a book, and it's kind of what uh, undergirded our uh, sermon last week, this theme or this idea that this too shall last. Like this might not go anywhere. This might always be something you carry. And for those of you that have lost family members, parents, my mom talks about it. My grandma died 30 some odd years ago at this point, almost 30 years ago. Or, and my grandpa was over 30 years ago. And she says that like every year at the holidays, like there's just this little, you know, 30 years later, there's still a tinge. There's these moments where she wishes she could just pick up the phone and call him. 30 years later, you know, like you just, on this side of eternity, we will always carry some of these things with us. They don't just disappear. And yet we also know that we're called and, and that we find ourselves in these places and spaces to celebrate. And to, and to get excited about things. And somehow we can hold these things in tension. Somehow both have to remain true, right? That we grieve and that we celebrate. Internally that remains true and it remains true of somehow we can do that with one another. We get and understand the confession that Christ will come again. At least we hope so at an end of a series like this. I think many of us can sit and long that Christ will come again, and yet we are oftentimes wondering, what does it mean in this longing, in this waiting, that Christ has come, that Christ is risen, that the kingdom is at hand when grief and trauma are part of our story, are part of the thing that we will always have to sort of navigate and experience, because the reality of it is, is it doesn't just go away even if you find healing in one moment. Unfortunately, it will find you again, and there will be moments of sadness, of sorrow that we encounter. And so that's, we're going to discuss that a little bit and how Advent speaks to that. But before we get to Advent, one of the things that we want to try to do is, as we look at what it means to hope and to, and to have this peace in the midst of it and joy and all these themes of Advent that we'll talk about, we want to talk about what it means that we have a community 
that can process and practice these things together. It would do us no real good if we simply just named trauma and grief and sort of gave you some things and then said, well, now, like, good luck. Right, like, well, now go figure it out. Or, yeah, 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 it's true. Because many of you throughout this series have probably been saying things like, yeah, we get it. I have trauma. I have grief. I have sorrow. I carry it. I have heartache. I have difficulty in my life. And for so many of you in this room, because I've sat in coffee shop after coffee shop with you, I know those stories. I know my stories. I know the heartache. I know the pain. I know the suffering. I know the limps that so many of us walk with. And so we hear a series like this and we're like, yes, that's so true. And culturally and societally, we're in this moment where everybody's saying, yes, that's so true. We know it. We experience it. We can name it. You don't have to tell me to grieve, okay? I grieve plenty. And then when we try to make these moves, when we try to say, okay, yeah, but there is still joy, we're so tempted. We're so eager to, or maybe... Uh, Complacent. I don't know what word it would be for each of us. It's a different reason, but we find ourselves in this space or this moment where we kind of go, yeah, but you don't know my whole story. Yeah, that, that worked out for you fine. But like, I, my story's different. And for your story, it probably is different. There are things that are different for everyone's story. And yet we have to figure out a way to hold these two things to be true together. And so... Today is going to be a little bit different of a sermon for me, at least. Uh, I told Anna, I said, I'm going to give myself the freedom to not make everything kind of flow so perfectly. Kyle and I both, we say we're chained to this idea that, like, everything has to connect and kind of, there's going to be more herky-jerky, three points, and then we're going to move on, all right? So, it, but it's practical, or I'm attempting to do some practical things here to say that this is how we can do this. And not just do it as a community, but do it as individuals and, and do it as believers. But then come back to this idea that we would also be sort of saying, like, as the pastors of Mosaic and the leaders, like, we want to be a community that can do these things. Like, this is our vision. This is our goal. And so I'm going to say things this morning that you may, if you get offended or you, you wrestle with it, that's fine. And there's some of these things that are just saying, like, this is what we are trying to do here in this community at Mosaic as we approach these topics. And so, like, we want to have conversations about these things. And it's not saying it's the only way to approach it. It's not to say it's the only way to do it. It's just to say this is what we are trying to do here together as a people, following Jesus in the 21st century in Birmingham, Alabama, in the year of our Lord, 2022, right? Like, this is how we're going to try to do this. And so that's where we're going to go. So I want to say this before I go that far. And make this clear, I hope that you have heard over the last four weeks and you hear in this sermon and as we move into Advent, into Christmas and feasting and celebrating seasons and Epiphany and all the things that we're going to mark and acknowledge in January, that this is something that in this community we take very seriously. Grief, trauma, sorrow, shame, anxiety, depression, we think that it is something that we want to uh, uh, engage. We want to be a community where people are free to talk about these types of things. But we also want to be a community that takes very seriously of that we live in this in a different kind of way because of Jesus. I'm sure you have seen the phrase make its way around social media. So to borrow from it, like we really genuinely believe in a lot of these topics that it's Jesus and therapy. 
It's not one or the other. We really think it's both, and we want to hold both together. Propaganda, the hip-hop poet, he has a coffee mug that I've seen him post about that says Jesus and therapy on it. And like that's, like that's, we, want, we want to say that that's true. And we want, we want to connect you to resources. We have lots of resources, uh, lots of people we know in this community that are studying this, that are uh, going to go on to do things in clinical settings. We have friends that we know. I have therapists that I have seen. I can recommend them to you, okay? This is something that I practice. But we want to recognize and acknowledge that we do so differently. So hear us when we say that it is something that we take serious. And we want to say this, that as we talk about joy and hope and grief and trauma in the middle of it, we're not trying to like bait and switch you. We're not trying to say, yeah, 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 there's grief and there's trauma, but there's Jesus. And it's just kind of like, you're just going to trade it out. Well, we want to look at you in the eye and deeply say, and it's why we've been moved to emotion again and again in this series and leading up to it, is we look at you. I look at you now and I tell you, it sucks and I'm sorry. It hurts and I'm sorry. And sometimes that's the best thing we can offer. When I say there is joy and there is hope in Jesus, the best thing I can offer you to like, understand that is for me to just look at you and go, and your pain sucks. And I don't know what to tell you. But I, I'm willing to sit with you. I'm willing to be near to you in those moments and just say, like, I, I don't have answers. But I can promise you that Jesus is good. And that's, I don't know how those two things always work together, but it, those two things can. And we want to be a community that lives this out. We want to be a community that can say to one another, I'm sorry. I wasn't planning on saying this. This is a side note. Uh, real quick, Montgomery went blind. We thought she was going to die for a minute. Uh, Montgomery's my English bulldog we've had for almost 10 years. And I got like rather emotional about the whole process. And that's because I'm a very emotional person. I'm not one of those dudes that are afraid to cry. I, I actually enjoy crying. I think it's good for the soul. This is what I love. This is the example of the type of community we have. Uh, I, I text a lot. I just, I, I have so many words I have to get out a day, and I'll find a way to do it. And so I'm in a lot of group chats and things, and, I, and, I'm, I'm, and a lot of it's older dudes in their 30s, 40s. And this is what I love about this. This is a perfect example. I would text people about Montgomery, and these grown men, not a single one of them ever responded to me. Man, I'm sure it's all going to be okay. Not one. That's amazing. They all responded, and they said, I'm really sorry. And they would text me later and say, is there anything we can do? Like, I can't imagine how scary that is. Grown men texting one another, saying these kinds of things. Like, this matters, and this is the kind of community we want to create. That's a dog. Like, that's, that's you know, as emotional as I was and ready to, like, you know, just have a full-on breakdown the morning that it was all happening. By the way, she somehow, Mariah Spade watched her for 24 hours with us, and she has her eyesight back. So Mariah healed her. That's Anna and I's theory. We're sticking to it. Well, maybe Jesus healed her through Mariah. But anyway, so she can kind of see again. So, but that was, it was heavy. It, I was sad. And these groups of people just looked at us and said, man, I'm really sorry. That sucks. So we want to say that. Like, do not hear us saying like, oh, yeah, 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 your trauma, your grief, your sorrow. Like, it, it's hard. Everybody deals with it. You'll be fine. Jesus is coming. No, 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 no. What we are saying is somehow... The two things are simultaneously true. That sucks and it hurts and I have no answers for you and I don't know how long you're going to have to sit in that. And I don't want to dismiss it. I don't want to say that you didn't experience that. I don't want to say that that wasn't real or caveat it all by saying, well, your dad probably really loved you. 
No, it's actually, honestly, truth is probably more so that, like, you open up, you start looking at your story, and there's a lot of intentional things that we as parents do to our kids that it's like, actually, no, I knew what I was doing when I yelled at them. And I, I, I intended to, to inflict an emotion on them. And that's the harder part to begin to swallow. And so we do this thing, and, and what we're saying is that it matters, okay? It's real, and somehow... In the mystery and the divine grace of Jesus Christ, we can also say that joy is simultaneously present. That hope, the, which is the anticipation of joy, is simultaneously present in the midst of this really difficult and hard thing. I know what it means to be the 12-year-old that still longs for affirmation. That's my story. That's the things I struggle with and deal with. I don't know what it's like to be in my 30s and long to be married. And for those of you that are there, I'm sorry. That's hard if you long for that. I know what it's like to have disappointment and heartache and that are failures of your own making. And to kind of look back and be like, I really screwed that up and in big ways. I don't know what it's like to have to long for children. It, it happened kind of easily for us. And I'm sorry for you that have to have that pain and that experience. That's hard. There are these ways in which our stories aren't all the same, and our griefs and our traumas aren't all the same, but we experience them and feel them all the same way as a real grief and trauma. And we can look at one another and say, I am sorry. That sucks. That hurts. And yet we can also simultaneously hold up the hope of the gospel and the truth of who Jesus Christ is to one another. And sometimes we have to do this thing where we look at one another and we say to them, you shouldn't have had to experience that. No 22-year-old should have had to have gone through that. No 12-year-old should have had to endure that. No 8-year-old should have been subjected to that. Go down the line of these stories. We have to look at one another and say, that wasn't fair for you. And we don't just do that in such a way that we say, and look at how amazing your life is now. You're so brave. You're so courageous. I think about this in race conversations. I'm naming Mariah Spade twice. Her and I hang out a lot. She watches the Duval Graham, the, the, the fun one, you know, the crazy one that's running around with Judah all the time. It's not to say Coco's not fun. I didn't mean that. So <laughs> they're just always running around being crazy. And so me and Mariah just sit there and talk at the, at the end of the school day at All Saints. And she was talking about this, this conversation in terms of race. And she was like, everybody talks to people and they're like, oh man, like, you're so brave, you're so courageous, it's so amazing, all this, like the movements you've done and all this and that and da 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 And it's like, but at some point you have to look at them and say, but you shouldn't have had to have been brave. It's okay sometimes to not always feel that, to not always be the one person in the room that's different than everybody else. Like you shouldn't have to have that weight. And this is true of so many things. We need to look at one another and say these things, that it isn't always fair and we need to be able to say that in such a way that we do not imply that Jesus will just magically make it all better. That somehow Jesus is just going to, whoop, once you have enough faith, once you have enough hope, if you just believed hard enough, you just prayed more, if you just stick around, Jesus will just make it all, it, it'll all be cool. Tell that to our friends and our brothers and sisters of color. They still carry a lot of this stuff with them. And, and being people of faith hasn't changed that for them. I don't have to experience that. 
I have this ease to walk through the world that's different because I'm 6'3", white, and male, okay? Like, I don't understand the difficulty that they have. But I know it's nothing that I've done on my own accord. It's not my faith. It's not because I'm just... I just was born with, like, in a society that treats me differently, right? And she's not going to go away for them magically. And that hurt and that, the scarring, they'll carry that forever in a different kind of way that I can't ever fully understand. Promise them that Jesus will just make it all better. But I can promise them that Jesus will be good to them despite that. And somehow these two things have to be true. And this is the part that takes faith. This is the part that's a jump. This is a part that's a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks, if you will. To somehow believe that all of that can be true and yet somehow to believe that Jesus is still good that God is still good, that he longs to be with you and provide and to care and to be near to you. It takes a jump. It does. I don't know how else to tell it to you. It takes faith. We can reason our way into a lot of things, but at some point to follow Jesus and to be a believer is to say, I'm going to have faith in this. I don't always think that this is going to necessarily feel like it's the truth, but I'm, I'm going to believe because I know who God is and I'm going to trust. And these two things have to be able to be true at the same time. Because we know ultimately that Christ our brother has suffered these things. And he has come devastatingly near to us. And this is the season we're about to celebrate. That he has experienced pain, trauma, grief, betrayal, heartache. I am sure even though he was the divine son of God, there were moments in his ministry. He thought, man, it would be really nice to go home to a, a wife right now. I, I don't doubt it. Totally conjecture here. Come with me in my creativity. But I'm sure it had to happen at a moment to think, man, that would be nice. Never had that. That was not his experience. I'm sure there were moments where he thought it would be really nice to know, have to know that these people that I love the most are about to walk away from me. He carried that with him. He knows our iniquities. He knows our sins. He knows our pains. He knows our struggles. And he is near to you. And that I will not waver on. I will not trade that out for anything. I will hold fastly firm to that idea that he is near and that he is good. And I will shout it from the rooftops until either everybody leaves and I don't have anybody to shout it to and they'll still probably shout it anyways, okay? I have to believe these things are simultaneously true. Now, here's the thing. If that takes a jump, if that is like this leap of faith that we have to make at some point, what it can feel like is that maybe we're playing some game of semantics. And what I promise you is that we are not. We're not trying to say, oh, well, if you just like kind of understand faith and joy differently. No, no, no. I'm saying that real joy, tangible joy and peace is available to you in the midst of all of this. Not some like re-understood idea of peace and joy. Now, you may need to re-understand happiness a little bit to come on this journey with us. Happiness is definitely not just getting to do whatever you want when it's convenient. Not what the gospel promises. But this real feeling of being able to say, like, I believe that there is goodness in the world. This real sense of peace and calm in the midst of difficulty, it is available. And we're not saying that you just have to re-understand it. The two can be simultaneously true. And if that is true, and there is this tension, then what I am convinced of and this is what I will contend with you for the remainder of this sermon, is that to do this, to be able to practice this, to live this, 
and to experience this, the only possible way is to do so in vulnerable community with one another. You cannot do this alone and in isolation. It will not happen. I don't know if any of you have ever tried to train for something that is quite extensive or just consistently commit to like working out early in the morning or doing something. Maybe some of you are better than me, but my experience, even with the people that I know that are like the fittest people around me, like without other people, eventually, unless you're Alex Mason, this man's the exception to the rule. He'll just get up and run anyways. But the rest of us normal people in the world... There's this moment where you're like, like without people, you're just not going to give yourself to something. The, the ability to stay connected to it will eventually wane in some sort of way. Difficult tasks require people to be around you. Now, that's a like surface level funny, haha, we get that, let's make that connection. I think in a deep, deep, like the way we are created and designed at a, a profound philosophical and theological level, we cannot experience these things as true unless we do so in community. I also think that's biological. We'll get there in a second. So Romans 16, this is why we're here. What we see in this chapter is something that is crazily and like counterculturally profound and provocative and yet is subtle enough that when I asked Kristen Lewis to read this passage, she texted me and she said, you did mean 16, 16 through 23, right? And I said, yeah. She said, that's kind of a weird passage. I was just making sure. I said, yeah, it's just a bunch of names for the most part. We threw some other stuff in there just so we felt like we were reading something else. But really, I just wanted the names. This is what I was going after today, these names. It's a weird passage, but it's saying something about what the church is supposed to be. The interesting thing about Romans 16 and what, I'll say this too, I'm indebted to Andy Crouch for this insight in his uh, most recent work, uh, The Life We're Looking For. Great book, you should read it. He uses Romans 16 to talk about the humanization and like the personalization of what the church and the gospel is supposed to do to one another. Here's what is it, interesting about most of these names. We didn't even read all the names at the beginning of 16. There's like 26 names, 27 names named in Romans 16. 12 of them are women. I don't know if you know anything about Roman culture, but there's no reason to rename women for any reason. Women down here in Roman culture, they don't have much worth or value. Uh, the men in Roman culture, the patrafamilia, would have been able to basically do whatever they wanted, whenever they wanted, could have sex with who they choose, could kind of go and like spend their money however they choose. The higher up in class you were, the more freedoms you had. You could kind of just do whatever you wanted. The women, not the case at all. Hey, you had to know who the father was. You had to be committed to this one person. You know? So the father could do whatever he wanted. Women, nothing. No, no real worth or value in Roman culture. The church immediately starts naming women. And not just normal women. Women that come from lower class. Women that have histories, if you know what I mean. This is true of all of scripture. We see it in Romans 16, that women are named. And they are immediately put in places of like prominence, honor, saying these are the people that are, Phoebe's going to carry this letter to Rome. Like, you didn't do this. Letters going to places was normal culture. You didn't have women carry the letter because to carry the letter and to read it to a group of people in some sense was to imply that they then were to expound upon it and to, dare I say, preach it or teach it, okay? Like, so this is what the New Testament church is doing immediately, 
is giving women this place of honor and value. But it's not just women. It's servants and slaves and people that are way down here. And you want to talk about a caste society, Roman culture. Like, I mean, it is a stratus. It is structured. And if you are down here, you do not hang out with people up here. As, uh, you know, whatever scandalous it was for Paul to eat with Gentiles, it is equally scandalous when we start to see things like the letter to the Romans in that we see that wealthy people are eating with poor people. You did not do this. Servants in the Roman society were as basically what, how we treat Amazon drivers, you know, just like nameless robots that should just deliver my things and pee in a cup. Like, just do what I need you to do so I can get my thing in 48 hours. I don't know why it's so hard. This is the way it was. This is the way Roman society was. But this was a mass system. And they were nameless. Okay, so here's the thing that I think is really cool. In Romans 16, what you see is in this authorship, you see these people being named, and you get right here towards the end that all the names are going, and there's this moment, verse 22, where it says, I, Tertius, who wrote down this letter, greet you in the Lord. Okay, this in Latin literally means three or third. In Roman culture, servants, people towards the bottom. This means that he was the third child born. That's as much of a name as he got. Firstborn got the father's name, the family's name from that direction. Thirdborn, secondborn, fourthborn, fifthborn. You just got a number. And that's all you were. You were a number to your family. Not to Jeff Bezos, your family. You are a number. And that's it. And you're expected to just go and be your servant class and to do your thing diligently. To scribes, people that wrote down letters. And just so you know, real briefly, the whole authorship thing of Romans is not really a debate. This is normal, ancient Near Eastern culture. They, wealthy people, smart people, they had people write their letters down for them. But the scandalous part is not that maybe Paul didn't write it. Oh my gosh, gotcha moment. No, that's not true. The scandalous part is that Paul would look at him and hand him the pen, and this is Andy Crouch right here. He, he, this is a paragraph, almost word for word. I'm quoting him from my brain. He hands him the pen, and he looks at him. And he says, I know you're a slave. I know you're a servant. Whatever his status would be, we don't know for sure. But to do this, to these types of people, what they're doing when they're writing down these letters for people, when they're you know, writing things down, they're secretaries, they're low class. It's a skill that the slave class would have learned. He maybe is a little bit above that. And he looks at him, and he says, you write your name. Go ahead, greet the church yourself, and put your name on the paper. He's humanizing him in this moment. All the pain and the grief that he would have experienced as a servant, as beneath everyone else. Paul looks at him and he says, no, 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 no. That's all real. I'm not going to deny it. We're not going to just pretend like it didn't exist. We're not just going to pretend like somebody owned you and, and forced you to do things and that now we're just all better because we're in the church. No, 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 no. That's real. And simultaneously, you have something to say and you have worth and value. But it takes community to do that. It takes relationships to do that. It takes the willingness of Paul to subject himself to ridicule and to mockery for hanging out with these people. It takes... Gaius, whose house they are in, his willingness and his kindness to open up his home to people that should not be in his home. They are committing social, like, you know, whatever, like they're ending it. It's over. 
They're, they're no longer going to be the impressive, powerful, and that's all that matters in Rome. Fast forward almost 300 years later, Rome's going to fall. And when Rome falls, they're going to come and it's going to get sacked. The women are going to be like uh, abused and raped. The men are going to be taken from their jobs and they're going to be left with nothing. And then a guy named Augustine comes along and writes a, story called, or writes a book called City of God. And one of the pastoral things he's doing is he's saying, in the church... Yes, that is your story. Yes, that is painful, but you are not defined by it. You have worth and you have value in the economy of Jesus Christ. You are, because here's the thing. If you would have been one of those women, you would have been left out of the society. Like, you're done. You're not getting married anymore, and if you were married, it's over, and your care, your provision, it's all gone. That's what they could have done if they wanted to. And Augustine's going to say, no, 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 no. In the economy of Jesus... We acknowledge your pain and your suffering and we look you in the eye and we say you have value and you have meaning and that there is something left of your story to tell and they honor those people and they elevate them and they give them place and they give them position. That doesn't happen without relationship and the willingness to be vulnerable with one another, to be open with one another, to give up your position, your privilege. Because to do that, we talked about this at the beginning, to do these types of things if I sit with Rachel and she's grieving and, and she has heartache, when she begins to talk to me, there's a way in which I can take some of her grief with me. But now I'm going to be more sad. That reality is like, it's unescapable. But she's going to feel better. Or my other option is to pretend like her grief is not that big of a deal and say, hey, everything's going to be fine. And now she leaves feeling crazy or even more sad. Like, these are the options. And so there's this moment where you have to open yourself up to the other person and be willing to take on some pain and some suffering. And so here's the reality. To live in this kind of way, to create this kind of community, you don't get to just do what you want to do. You don't get to just, like, do the thing that makes your life better. You don't get to just, like, move your way up the social ladder and climb the powers. And you don't get just to be comfortable. And you don't get just, oh, well, you know, ah, it's not really my thing. I don't really, you know, talk to people that are sad. I'm more of the party planner, the happy person, so, you know, well, you want to go have a drink? No. You do what's in front of you, and you live as though Christ is living through you, and you encounter that person, and you care for them, and you meet them where they are, because your hope is that they'll do the same for you. Now, here's, the, like, the science of it. This is why I'm convinced this is real. We actually note attunement theory, not just for babies and parents. But we actually know that in the act and the process of telling someone's story, it makes sense and is understood by the telling to another person and their response to it. So as you listen to my story when I'm, when I'm going through a difficult thing, the way in which you respond, your eyes, your face, your attunement to me talking, actually allows me to understand my own story, actually allows me to understand my own grief, my own pain, my own trauma. I can talk about it out loud in a room by myself, and that could be helpful because at least I'm acknowledging and naming something. But without another human being in front of me attuning to me, and they're like, I actually can't ever understand it fully until I say it to someone else. Our brains, the, the, the way they are wired, require this. So we do not even understand or know our own stories until we actually tell it to someone else and are open and honest about it. 
And I am not talking about the way that I, I think, I'll say this, I'm guilty of this. If you're guilty of it, uh, feel convicted in this moment. I'm guilty of this. I'm not talking about subtly sharing a little bit of your story so that you can control the narrative of who you are. A lot of us do this. I do this. I will subtly kind of say, oh, I struggle with this, and I'm doing so because I like control, and I want you to have a very specific understanding of who I am as a person, and I like my story, and I, I need you to understand me and, and how I work and function on my own. So we will subtly kind of share pain, sorrow, grief, in these like sort, but we're not really being open and honest. We're not being vulnerable. We're being controlling. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about actually standing in front of someone and someone else and pouring your heart and soul out in such a way that they can actually look at you and they can say something like, I'm really sorry. Even when I have like medical problems, like if I'm talking to someone, I've been talking to a few people the last couple weeks. Anyways. Like, I'll do this thing where I start to explain it, and I'm like, yeah, 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 I've already read all that. Like, I, I'm, I'm letting you know my problems. I just need you to affirm what I think about myself, okay? I'm not actually being open. I'm not actually, like, laying it to bear. I'm not actually saying, I need help. I'm always trying to control, right? Humanity does this. There are other ways you can do this. You can use humor. You can use comedy. You can run from it. You can hide from it. You can never acknowledge any of it. There's lots of ways that we hide and refuse to be open and honest. That's my way. But to do this, to live in this kind of community, to have this thing happen the way that we believe that it can, it requires you to be open, honest, and vulnerable. It requires you to sacrifice for other people. It requires you to be present, near, and around. Because if you don't, then what we can end up doing is just getting right on the edge of it. We're really close to processing these things. We're really close to acknowledging these things. And we talked earlier about that there's an ability in a way in which we want to name things but not be named by it. And that is totally true. But we also don't want to do this kind of like pseudo-naming and then use it as a defense mechanism to kind of keep people at bay. To never acknowledge like my own faults and failures. To never actually be honest about my own story. Because here's the thing. This is what shame would do. And this is where we're going to start to land the plane. This community that I'm a firm believer in and I long for, and I want us to be the type of community that can live this, it requires us to move towards one another even when it is uncomfortable and inconvenient. It requires us to move towards one another even when we don't feel like it or want to. Because the subtle thing of shame and what it does, as we talked about in week one, is it separates us from God. Shame's actually a neurobiological response that indicates to you that something is wrong and you are at risk of being alienated and abandoned because of your behavior. There is such a thing as good shame. There is such a way in which we can talk to our children and our friends and one another about like, hey, you're doing that thing again. And we have to have that because if it's true that it's shame, as we said with Adam and Eve, it moved them away from God. They hid from God. They covered themselves up and they tried to go away. They, they tried to run from his presence as shame set in. It separates them as well, right? That shame, they, they moved away from one another. And the reality of it is, is that shame actually causes you to move away from yourself too. Shame is the thing that forces you to not even be able to understand your own story. To not even be able to be honest with who you are and to be honest to yourself. 
To be integrated, to be honest, is to listen to someone help you along the way. There's a moment in your life, there are moments in your life, I should say plural, where it will reflect your thinking and hearing in your brain. I know the story you see, but i just be honest for a second, everybody else sees something different. And it's shame. We hide, we, we protect, we blame, we, we blame ourselves, we blame others. And we are unwilling to be vulnerable and honest with one another and to open up to one another. And we have to. We have to move towards one another because that is actually what shame is trying to get us to do. The natural and necessary response of shame is to actually move closer to the source, not further away, to be open about who you are, to be honest about it. Now, obviously, I am not should just like go willy-nilly throwing around all your deepest, darkest secrets to anybody and everybody. There's an intelligence. There's kind of a, a logic. You know, there's uh, this person's safe. This person's not. That's true. Jesus is pearls before swine. I'll always use that for lots of things because the idea is you don't want to give somebody something valuable that they're just going to tramp into the mud. That's what he's saying there. So you do this in the context of safety in the right places. Oftentimes, Coming back full circle to the beginning, the first place, then the safest place to begin to do that is in a clinical setting with a therapist, a counselor. And they'll learn and they'll help and they'll coach you how to begin to incorporate people into the story, how to tell it, how to process it. But here's what I want to say on the other side of that, is if that is true, that we need this, we need this safe place and culture where we can be honest with one another, then what that means is for those of us that maybe aren't currently processing that or have processed that, it requires us to be present in a different kind of way. I don't mean to attend something and just have a body and a space, but I mean to be present and to be able to listen and for people to be able to count on you and to know you are going to be present and to know you are going to be around. As we ask and invite people to come into this community and say, we want to be a place where you can find healing for your shame, for your trauma, for your grief. That means for those of us that have found healing, what is demanded of us is that we be Jesus towards these people. And it's not saying we're saving them. A lot of them know Jesus very intimately. But we have to be present and attuned to them in a kind of way that asks something of us. And that's unescapable. You have to be able to listen to people. You have to be willing to be honest and to sit and to pay attention and to hear and to take that grief and that sorrow onto your shoulders even when all you want to do is just have a chill night at home. I like chill nights. I really like my home time. I like my schedule and my structure. But sometimes we're asked to do something more than that. To someone, to look them in the eye and to say, I'm really sorry. This is really inconvenient for me right now is what you say in the back of your head. But to you, I've got all the time in the world. Let me sit with you. Let me be present to you. It requires us to be a community that's consistent, that does what they say they're going to do, that's around when they say they're going to be around, that creates a culture where people feel comfortable to say, I, I, can, I can show up and I know that person's going to be there for me, that they're going to pray for me, that they're going to... And again, I'm not talking about attendance, okay? You can miss things. That's not what I'm saying. It's not attendance. It's not just saying like, oh, yeah, 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 like you can't miss anything. No, no, no. It's... it's it's being present to these people. It's, it's communicating. It's being honest. And it is also being willing to hear. 
When you share your grief, when you open up and you're vulnerable, it is trusting and caring about the people on the other side that you're saying, I'm willing to actually like, let you say something back to me, and I'm not going to use my story and my trauma and my grief to just hold you at arm's bay, but I'm actually going to listen to you and trust that God has put me in a community and a context that the Spirit is alive and moving and active, and that I should listen, and dare I say, I should submit to the people around me and trust that they have my best intention and, and come in an attitude of graciousness, to come in an attitude of like hospitality, to just not assume that everybody's out to get me. And so I think that there are some ways that we can do this. I think there are some ways that we can begin to do this as a community together. One, we have to learn to lament. Our culture does a terrible job of lamenting. We have no practical ways you maybe, if you go through grief, you wear black to the, to the viewing and to the funeral if, you, if you're dealing with a death, and then you kind of move on. There are some cultures that would sit with people for days on end, right? Jewish culture, eight days. We as a culture don't grieve well. We have no public display of lamenting. If something nationally tragic happens, we lower the flags to half staff for like, you know, 24 hours. We have to learn to lament. And that's something that we at Mosaic need to learn how to do a better job, to have these moments and worship services and prayers where we can light a candle, we can, we can write something down, we can pray a prayer where we say, like, these are the things I'm carrying and I'm lamenting. We have to learn to sorrow. And when I say sorrow, I, what I mean by that is, is that there's, I think, three ways, and I'm indebted to Gordon Bowles for this, that we have to be able to uh, acknowledge our own failures we encounter grief, we have to acknowledge the role and be honest about the role we played and be willing to hear from other people about that role. We have to name that, our brokenness, our shortcomings, our failures. We have to name our anger and be about it. We, we have to actually acknowledge that sometimes anger is a good thing, but unattended anger and unprocessed anger will turn to fury and it'll have a, a rage component about it that just gets dumped on people. Instead of if you combine these things, if you sorrow well, when something tragic happens, it is good and right to be angry at it. Anger is a real emotion that we should all become more acquainted with. But we need to know what it is. And, and when we get angry, when we're mad, we need to understand the brokenness, the fallenness. It's a moment for honesty and truth. And it actually, I think, softens that anger. And it turns into the word I would say, is, which is anguish. And it's a softer emotion that can actually move us into a situation to try to do something about it. It gives us energy to be present and to be near. But you have to be honest. You have to process it. You have to name these things and then do something with them. And then third, I think that we have to be able to sorrow in such a way that we have a great hope for what can be. There's a moment where we encounter situations where maybe something's not wrong, it's not off, but you look and you go, God, like... I know what you've done in my life, and I long for you to do more of it. This longing, this sorrow that I'm talking about, it's the end of a good vacation. It's the end of a great night out with friends where you're just like, ah, I just wish there was more. Like, I just wish we could stay in this moment. Sometimes we get that feeling of looking at our friends, looking at ourselves, our own lives, and we go, God, like, I know you have more for me. I know you would deliver. I know you would be good to me. And, and we turn ourselves to God instead of to ourselves and just get bitter and angry and try to grab. We say, like, God, you're so good. You're so big. There's so much you have to offer. 
Let us long for it and walk into it with you. We have to do this with people, though, because you will not do this on your own. You have to do this in community because you will not do it on your own. You will too easily just kind of walk away from it. Hear me quickly on this, and then I really am going to truly land the plane here. Uh, so, band, if you can come up in like 60 seconds, okay? When I say all this, I want to name a few things quickly. If you have experienced certain pains and traumas, real traumas that have been inflicted upon you by people in certain positions and power, I want to say to you, like, there are moments where it would be good and right for you to just be like, hey, I just can't right now. Some of the examples I named last night with Anna as she was helping me process this was like, I think of like people that have experienced real pain in like uh, prophetic ministry cultures, that the word of the Lord was misused and abused by people in authority and people in power. Well, God said, God did this. And these prayer moments that are used manipulatively and that real like trauma happens there the, in that moment, like, I would totally get if at 21 days of prayer, if you're coming out of that season, that you're like, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip out on that uh, early morning prayer moment. Like, that's, I don't know if I'm ready to go back there yet. That's okay. Like, those moments are fine. You can't simply just say, I'm not going to be a part of it, though. You have to name it. You have to be willing to be open and honest. And I'm not saying with me. I'm saying with someone. And learn how you can find yourself back into that space because you know that God longs to do those types of things, to speak words of life over people, to connect in prayer, all this, okay? Another thing I would say briefly, Anna watched this documentary with a group of girls on a girls' weekend, and I don't know why they watched it, but they did. And it was this, like, cult documentary of these churches, I think it was in Tennessee, that they, like, created a diet cult around Christianity, okay? If you come out of that, that's weird, it's crazy, she explained it to me, it's nuts. But if you come out of that, when we hit Lent, if you're like, yeah, I'm going to hold off on the whole abstaining from food and fasting thing, I'd be like, yeah, you probably should for a while. Like, that's okay. And if you have experienced real pain in the church and you just go like, for a season, like, I just got to stay home. Like, I, I don't know how to be a part of a community. I'm relearning what it means to step into community, to be vulnerable, to be honest. And you're like, I just, I kind of got to go on my own. I get it. And that's okay. If you are earnestly and uh, honestly searching for truth and searching for healing, he will be good to find you even at home. He doesn't need to find, it doesn't just have to be here. He will be good to find you. And so we say like we get it. There's those spaces, there's those moments, there's other examples we could go down. Name some of them to say we're not saying like you have to force yourself to just kind of get over it. There are seasons that it's okay to, to step back, to, to find healing, to find comfort. But do not let yourself stay there. Move to that third sorrow of knowing that God has more for you. And let it pull you into something more, something active, something good. Embrace the vulnerability. Our life is a life of vulnerability. You don't get to escape it. The American ideal, I think, is that eventually we get to a point where we have it all together and we're perfect and formed and then we just help everybody else along the way. No, 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 no. You will always be vulnerable. Something will always be asked of you. To be human is to be at risk of dying at any moment, right? Our life is vulnerable. We are finite beings. Embrace it. Acknowledge it. Move towards the pain, the hurt, the suffering in your life and in others, be committed, be consistent, and in doing so, we do all of this because that is who Jesus is. 
And we believe that as he captivates your life and as the spirit dwells within you, that he is moving us to become more like him. And we want to live that out as a community. And I believe that we can live that out as individuals. And as we do that, I mean, I just, it, it overwhelms me with what is possible. I heard a preacher say this the other day, like when you start to think about these things and the goodness of God, it's the fragrance of the Lord. And, and she said, it, it doesn't stink, y'all. And I was like, gosh, I love that line. Like, this is a joyful thing. This is a thing to be excited about. God is beautiful. And he longs to bring you into that beauty. In the midst of suffering, in the midst of difficulty, we hold true to, to, hold to, to the truth of the cross. And we actually take, do this thing where we put ourselves in the way of this oncoming beauty, this oncoming joy. And we allow it to just overwhelm and mess us up. And it doesn't just change everything. But it meets us there because that's who God is. And that's what we celebrate at communion, is a God that drew that near, that took these things on, and somehow, in some way, in the midst of what we're experiencing, going through, he meets us there, he sits with us, and he walks with us, and he changes us. My favorite part about communion is that as you take the elements, hey, we, this is like science of food, right? Like it does something, it becomes a part of you as you eat things, so much so that it, it'll change the way certain things smell, Right? And so you do this, and I think this is true of communion as we ingest it. Like part of the mystery of it is that, that it somehow changes you into these elements. Sacrifice and, and forgiveness for people in the world and to be able to sit with them and to process these things and to be Jesus to a world that desperately needs it. So as the band plays, come and take a piece of the bread and the cup, go back to your seats, hold on to those elements. And after the song, I'll come up and I'll lead us in the taking and the receiving of the one cup and the one body. So come and receive the gifts of God for the people of God. Amen. Mm -hmm.